The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. We can, all of our kids, ages four and five, I think can be dismissed over this way. And let me just invite you to uh, take your copy of God's Word and open with me to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 9. And um, Exodus chapter 9 is where we'll be, and uh, we're going to continue just to walk through. I've got a, probably, I think, this may be the briefest uh, of the plagues, uh, the, the ten plagues. This is the briefest account, I think, maybe. Um, not by much, but, uh, but just, just kind of shortened to the point, but uh, packed full. So I'm going I'm to hopefully walk through this, um, uh, and I believe God has great truth to change us for him today. Um, 20th century American poet Ogden Nash said, happiness is having a scratch for every itch. When you say that's true, it's taken some of you a while to get that. A scratch for every itch. You You ever had an itch that you couldn't get to? That's misery, isn't it? You can't reach it. It's down inside a cast somewhere or something. It's just miserable. Or your hands are full and your nose starts itching. Ever had that happen to you? Right now, everybody's nose just started itching right now. Um, Look, today, God is going to, in the middle of the Israelites being held captive and him declaring to Pharaoh, let my people go that they can serve me. Pharaoh's hardest heart time and time again, and God is going to send this plague of boils uh, on them. And I want to read this, and I want to dive in, and I want you to know that I'm going to deal with boils and what they are up front because I want that to be as far away from lunch as possible. Okay, so uh, let's, let's read this together and we're going to look at this issue of itching for relief. Um, Exodus chapter 9, beginning in verse 8. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take handfuls of soot from the kiln and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and and stood before Pharaoh and Moses threw it in the air and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before before Moses because of the boils for the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians." But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. So let's dive right into this. And we, we've walked through turning the water to blood. We, we've seen things like frogs and gnats and flies and cattle dying and livestock dying, and now boils. If you're paying attention, this, the plagues are increasing in intensity. In fact, today is the first time it's ever said that that they will come on human life. Uh, last week, death was mentioned, but it was not death of human beings. It was death of, of animals. This week, it's stepping it up a notch, and it's going to impact and affect human, human beings and their, their health. So let me, here's the first point. No abuse will go unpunished. No abuse will go unpunished. In God's economy, no abuse will go unpunished. Let's look at what these boils and, that are breaking out in sores are. So just prepare your stomachs for 
this. Uh, the, the word boils is used a dozen times in the Old Testament for a variety of skin conditions or disorders. Uh, Leviticus 13 describes very similar um, episode as leprosy. And some are saying, some have, have tried to look at the symptoms here in Exodus chapter 9 and, and said, this is most certainly leprosy. Well, we don't know that for sure. Um, some have suggested that this is smallpox. This is an outbreak of, of smallpox. But the most common um, suggestion for what this is, these boils are, is, is that it's skin anthrax. Um, different than the anthrax that would be ingested, that can be quite fatal, but skin anthrax is rarely, if, if, uh, rarely, rarely fatal, but it has symptoms just like this. In fact, let me just describe the symptoms of skin anthrax to you. Uh, first, the skin swells. The second, then after two or three days, there, there's small bluish-red pustule with a central depression in the middle of the swelling kind of appears on the skin. Um, after a few days later, the depression dries up, that, that pustule dries up, and, uh, and, and a new boil shoots up in the middle of it. Uh, the tissue then swells into inflamed sores. Uh, as if the skin is burnt, and then it finally peels off. You say, thank you for that. I pray you don't think of that today when you're sitting at Cracker Barrel, but now you will. I, I, the reason I explain that to you is we don't know that it's skin anthrax. We don't know that it's smallpox. We don't know that it's leprosy. We don't really know what it is. We know it was awful. I want you to feel just how awful this is. That it's described here as coming on the skin of all the Egyptians. Don't miss that. All the Egyptians. And in saying so, he is reminding us again that God is hedging protection over the Israelites. And it's coming on all the Egyptians. The magicians and all the Egyptians. It's, it is also implying there that Pharaoh himself is infected with this. This is horrific, and not just their, the people, but also on their animals as well. This is just devastating. This is an epidemic that is, that is just unprecedented. But look also in verse 8, these boils will break out, but they will only do so after Moses is instructed to take soot, ashes, from the kiln and throw them in the air. You say, we have to ask, what in the world is that about? Why all of a sudden this method? I mean, God has in the past used either his staff touching the ground or, or holding it over. God has just spoken and these things have happened. But why this dramatic expression of taking soot from the kiln and throwing it into the air? Well, chapter 5 in Exodus gives us a clue. You can turn back there if you want. You don't have to. I'm not going to read a lot from there. I'm just going to remind you of what took place. The Israelites were having to make bricks for the Egyptians, probably in these very kilns. See, if we don't know the context of Scripture, we can miss a lot of things. When God here says to Moses, take soot from the kiln, he is, I believe, directly pointing back to how the Israelites were mistreated. That in chapter 5, they were forced after Pharaoh was was angry and, and hardened, they were forced to continue to make bricks, but this time without straw, the text says. 
that they, they won't be given straw by Egypt. They'll have to go out and collect their own on top of making the bricks. And by the way, their quota won't be reduced. And if they don't meet their quota, then they're going to be beaten severely for not making their quota. You remember that all in chapter 5? We, we read past that and we think, well, you know, God must have just forgotten that. But don't ever forget, God is just. This point, no abuse will go unpunished, I think comes directly out of this. Chapter 5 gives us this clue of why the kiln. And also, if you study history, it was customary for Pharaoh's priests to take these ashes from these sacrifices in their worship and to throw them in the air. You ever seen LeBron James come on the court? And he goes to the, to the chalk and he, and he you know, and, and does the whole ceremonial thing. And the people in Cleveland go nuts over that, you know. Well, this was kind of the, the image here, the picture of what was happening in their religious ceremonies. These Egyptian priests would come to the, to the kiln and they would take these ashes and they would throw them in the air. God has taken, I heard one, one commentator say, God took this sign of blessing and turned it into a curse. God, I think here, is showing Israel, I haven't forgotten you. And I think he's showing Egypt no evil will go unpunished. No abuse will go unpunished whatsoever. So here, quickly, the application for us is this. We look around the world, and right now, one of the questions people have is, if God is just, and if God is good, and if God is all-powerful, then why are those things happening? I mean, many of you have seen the videos of Planned Parenthood and, and how just coarse and evil the discussion is and what's going on in Planned Parenthood. And we wonder, does God know about this? Is God aware of this? We can be sure that God knows exactly about Planned Parenthood and the abortion of these babies and the harvesting of body parts and the selling of them for profit, regardless of what's being said. God knows. In, in this should give us great hope to know that no abuse goes unpunished. When we look on the internet and we see Christians in other parts of the world standing on beaches with members of ISIS only to be beheaded for their faith, it should give us great hope to know that God says no abuse will go unpunished. Maybe you're here today and, and you're Abuse is closer to home. It's not some organization or some terrorist group, but it's you. It happened to you. And, and sometimes you wonder, does anybody see, does anybody know what will happen? Perhaps it was a family member or an uncle who touched you inappropriately. Perhaps you're a wife here and You've had to, on several occasions, hide bruises. I'm, right now, this comes close to home for me. Um, my sister is laying in that bed in a nursing home and got a text this morning from mom that just now, since December 16th, just now, she was able this week, uh, yesterday, to, uh, to, to use her left hand to reach for a fork and to spear some watermelon and bring that to her mouth. 
but as happy as I am that my sister's making progress, we don't know who attacked her. We may never know who attacked her. Am I to, to assume that justice will be undone, that, that whoever this was will just get away scot-free? Brings us great hope to know that no abuse will go unpunished. Now we pray for those who persecute us. We pray for those who abuse us and mistreat us. We're commanded to by our Savior. We pray that the gospel would reach the members of ISIS. We pray that the gospel would reach the, those that, that dawn the halls of Planned Parenthood. We pray, I pray that the gospel would reach the heart of that person who attacked my sister so that they might receive the same grace that I have received because in God's sight, their sin is no greater than mine. God demonstrated his love toward me in that while I was a sinner, Christ died for me. We pray for that, but we don't pray just sweeping this under the rug thinking that somehow in God's economy these things will just go unpunished. Our God is a just God. And if there need be any more proof that God is just and will not allow any abuse, any wrong to go unpunished, just look at the cross. If God's not just, Jesus doesn't go to the cross. There's some other way. But the very fact that God sent his own son to stretch out his arms and have nails piercing his skin and giving up his own life means that God said justice must be carried out. When you and I come to the tables today and we take the the bread and we take the juice, we're reminding ourselves that God is just. That there had to be death. And rather than imposing death on us, Jesus took our death for us. No abuse will go unpunished. This should cause us not only to be encouraged, but it should also cause us to tremble. Contrary to our default position, we're not always the victim. Sometimes we're the oppressor. And and I think we need to remind ourselves of that. And, and perhaps there's someone here and you are actively involved in engaging in, in abuse that is physically harming someone or, or emotionally harming someone. There's, there's something going on. And, and I'm telling you, be convicted by the Spirit of God and turn from it to Christ and, and leave it. Leave it by the power of the Spirit. But perhaps yours is not the abuse that I've described. Perhaps it's just simple things internet pornography or gluttony or gossip, slandering a brother or sister or whatever the case may be, remind yourself that today you're not, yes, you're innocent in Christ if you are in Christ. No more condemnation for you. But don't ever forget that on a daily basis, you and I sin. And it should cause us to tremble. That's why even in the New Testament, Jesus said things like, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. I'm not saying that as a Christian that you and I should should be fearful of God in such a way that it causes us not to approach him. 
Because other places in Scripture, we're told we have confidence to come boldly before the throne. Hebrews chapter 10. But what I am saying is, I'm praying that, and I I started this, I, I told you this several weeks ago, I'm praying that we, as Christians, living among injustice every day, would would begin to see ourselves and our own sin all the more clearly, and that it would break our hearts, and that it would cause us to, to seek to want to live righteous lives, not because we strive to earn God's favor, but because in Christ we have his favor. And it, that should change the way we live. It should change the decisions that we make. I spent some time this week, and I'm totally off my notes, but I spent some time this week just down. In fact, it's been a while, just been struggling with just being down. I've struggled all my life with, with bouts of depression that come and go. I've just been down, feeling just under a weight. And I just spent some time in the psalm, in the psalms this week. And yesterday morning, I woke up early, and I was in my study, and I was just reading through Psalm 30. And just reading the gladness of the psalmist that God heals. That he lifts us up. See, we have no, we have no more claim to God than anybody because it's not us. We are only made right with God by the finished work of Jesus Christ. Second point I want to share with you this morning is that not only will no abuse go unpunished, but secondly, no rival will be able to stand. No rival will be able to stand. I take this language directly from the text. In verse 11, the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. Now, last we saw these magicians, it was in the plague of the gnats. And up till then, they had been able to reproduce those, those, uh, the plagues that would come through Moses and Aaron. But when, when the gnats came, they, they could not do this, and they, they were defeated, and they looked to Pharaoh, and they said, this is the finger of God. They, they admitted their defeat. So this is the last time we saw them. So the question is, why now bring them back in? They weren't mentioned at all last week. Why bring them back up now? Well, a couple of reasons. Number one, the magicians in Egypt were also seen as the doctors. They were the, the, the medical professionals of their day. And so here, when this first plague that mentions bodily harm comes on the doctors themselves, it is a direct blow to what the people of Egypt were putting their hope in. When the doctor gets sick, you're in trouble, right? Imagine the fear and the people who were suffering and and fearful of Ebola to begin with when their doctor had to be evacuated because he now had Ebola. Imagine the fear here. The, the Egyptians would look on and say, but it's not only us, it's our physicians as well. And it was showing the people of Egypt that medicine could not protect them. The second reason is that magicians practice their medicine through the powers of Egypt's false gods. Gods like Amon Re or Amon Re, the creator god. One ancient text said that he dissolves evils and dispels ailments. He is a physician who heals. 
And so they were practicing medicine under the power of gods like Amon-Ri or Thoth, the god of the healing arts, or Imhotep, the god of medicine, or Sekhmet, uh, and I'm butchering these, I'm sure, but her priests formed one of the oldest medical fraternities in history. She was a lion-headed goddess who was supposed to have had the power of both creating epidemics and bringing them to an end. See, not only was God showing the Egyptians their doctors couldn't protect them, but even what was behind their doctors couldn't protect them. The gods of Egypt couldn't protect them. And the parallel to us this morning is that like the Egyptians, it's very easy for us sometimes to put all of our hope in something besides God, like the medical field. I mean, most of us, when we go to the doctor, we expect to uh, be diagnosed and be given a remedy and to get well. Whether that is a prescription or surgery or whatever the case may be, we we think we're going to the doctor and, and they're going to make us well. I mean, you think about all the advancements and discoveries that have been made over the last 100 years or so. I mean, things like CAT scans. Do you know how a CAT scan works? I mean, if you do, good on you, but I don't know how a CAT scan works, right? I don't know how an MRI works. I mean, things like robotic surgery and laser surgery. Can you imagine this? A hundred years ago, a doctor saying, you mean there's going to be a machine that will operate? And the doctor would have laughed you out of the room. Things like antibiotics that we take for granted. Things like anesthesia. Aren't you glad for anesthesia when you got to go under the knife? These are advancements, and these are good things. Do do you know the leading cause of death in in the year 1900? The the leading three causes of death? Just be thinking in your head some guesses. Number one was pneumonia. Number two was tuberculosis. And number three was diarrhea. And that's funny to the kids. But you think about that diarrhea in some, some places in the world today, it still is one of the leading causes of death. But think of where we've come. Think of the medical discoveries, everything that has come, and everything that is coming at, at light speed. Yet still, there are things we have no answer for. There's still no cure for cancer. There's still no cure for AIDS. Things like mad cow disease or Ebola. Scientists and doctors are confounded by these things. We place our hope in medicine, but sometimes medicine fails. Not only that, but sometimes there are horrendous abuses of medicine. I mean, things like abortion and stem cell research from these aborted babies, designer babies, human cloning, physician-assisted suicide. Wherever there is sin, good things will be perverted. Philip Graham Ryken said, medicine makes a wonderful tool but a poor deity. If you're here today and you are placing all of your hope in medicine or something other than God to, to make you whole or well or fulfilled, let me just say to you, let me just say to you from, from, from first-hand experience, because I am a human being, you will find no relief in anything but God. 
You, you will find it, it's, medicine is wonderful for what it can be used for. It is a great tool, but if it is where you're placing all of your hope, you will be let down. It's exactly what it had become in Egypt. It was a rival God that promised protection and hope, but it could not provide either one, and God tolerates no rivals. So he, in this dramatic fashion, having Moses take soot from the kiln, throw it into the air, boils spreading on the people and the animals all over Egypt, shows them that their hope should not be placed anywhere but in him. In the end, God will be shown as the only one who is able to protect his people. I'm not talking about just in Egypt, but I'm talking about in all of human history. Revelation chapter 21 says he will wipe away every tear. There will be no more death. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. I look forward to that day. When I stand here in the welcome and say, I look forward to that day, that's not just preacher speak for me saying, you know, let's, let's look to Jesus and let's put on plastic smiles and pretend. I, I'm saying, I look forward to that day. I look forward to that day when I'm not standing before you in a boot because I can't play basketball anymore because I'm not as young as I once was. I look forward to that day when I don't, I don't struggle with depression You look forward to that day when there will be no more losing loved ones, when there will be no more cancer, or there will be no more abuse, injustice. We look forward to that day. And the gospel, the coming of Jesus, is the only thing that will deliver. Place your hope in him. And then third and finally is this. No rejecter will be finally denied. No rejecter will be finally denied. And this doesn't mean what it sounds like it means at first. I'm not saying that the person who rejects Jesus all of his life, that in the end, God from his rocking chair on his porch will say, I was just kidding, come on in. This is what the world believes. And it is a lie from hell to keep your focus off of the truth. When I say no rejecter will be finally denied, I point, draw this directly from verse 12. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Now, we've heard this language of Pharaoh's heart being hardened multiple times, but this is the first time in the plagues that God is the one who is said to be the hardener the one who is doing the hardening. Now, God said this in chapter 4, verse 21, that he was going to harden Pharaoh's heart. He reminded Moses again in chapter 7, verse 3, that he would be the one who would harden his heart. But here's the first time. Up till now, it's either been his heart was hard or Pharaoh hardened his heart. And some commentators, I'm going to spend two weeks from now, will spend a significant amount of time looking at God's sovereignty in election. And that's going to be trepidatious for me to preach that, and you'll want to be here for that, but I don't want to dive too far into that. But there are some commentators who say that God here is simply now, halfway through the plagues, responding to Pharaoh's decisions to harden his own heart. Since Pharaoh has repeatedly denied and hardened his heart, then God finally says, okay, Pharaoh, you can have it. You can have what you want. And that's not what's going on here. 
There is some truth in that, though. That truth is, is taught to us from Romans 1 that God does give us up and does give us what we want. When I say no rejecter will be finally denied, I mean finally denied what his heart really wants. Romans 1, verses 24 through 32, long section, but listen as I read. Follow, just listen intently as, as we walk through this section. Romans 1, 24 says, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to, to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a, deba- to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. If that's not a modern commentary on our culture, I don't know what is. But listen, three times God says, gave them up. I gave them up to this. I gave them up to this. I want to walk backwards through it and I want to show you where that comes from. Around every time God says, gave them up, he also tells us why. He says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, I gave them up. For their women exchanged natural relations. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Therefore, God gave them up. So there is truth in this that that part of God's discipline and his punishment sometimes is giving us exactly what we want. Sometimes the worst thing that can happen to you is to receive what you actually want. It should cause us to right now, right here, every day, pray that verse that I read to you last week, Psalm 51.10. Oh God, create in me a clean heart. Because if we're honest, our hearts are desperately wicked. And we more often resist the will of God then we obey it. And it is only by His grace that He does not give us judgment in giving us up. But His faithfulness to His covenant that He made with us in Jesus Christ is true. And regardless of of how many times we fail and we run and we sense and because and for, 
God holds back and says, I will not give them over. I will not give them over. I will not give them over. Not because we're so valuable to the team that God's afraid to offend us that we might move off his team and go somewhere else. It's out of his love for himself and ultimately for his own glory. He loves us. He loves his glory enough that he will not punish us in that way to give us over. Now, there are times when we are so obstinate that that he will give us what we want, and it causes us, those who are filled with the Spirit, to be truly convicted, and we turn and we come back to him. But we better thank God that in Christ he's not giving us over. So here's the thing, and I'll real briefly just finish this up. I've got four points of application that I'll just walk through. Pharaoh here hardens his heart. It shows us really how we should not respond to God. What should we learn from the way Pharaoh responded to God's hand? Well, number one is this. We should surrender to God's sovereignty in our suffering. Remember Job? Satan came before God. God said, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan said, the only reason he obeys you, the only reason he worships you is because you protect him, you bless him. Let me me add him. And he'll turn from you, God. Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores Job chapter 2 says, from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. His wife told him, commit suicide. Job said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak, shall we receive good from God and not evil? The Bible goes on to say that in all these things, Job didn't sin in his words. See, Job came to this suffering that came to him having not done anything wrong. He wasn't being disciplined or punished by God. But Satan comes and it just afflicts him. And Job understands God is sovereign over suffering. No matter what we go through in our life, there are some things we will go through because of, that are consequences of our choices. I understand that. But there are sometimes we will go through things in our life and we will say, why is this happening? Why now? Why me? Why them? We can rest assured that God is sovereign in our suffering. That whatever we go through, it has been deemed necessary by a sovereign God for our sanctification so that we might be conformed to the image of Christ. Number two, we should examine our life and see if we have sinned, and if we have sinned, confess it to God. This is what Pharaoh didn't do. He didn't take stock of his life. He didn't examine. Now, I'm not saying that every suffering comes as a result of of our sin, that we are being disciplined, but I'm say, some are. I, I'm thankful 
So I read through Psalm 30, and I, I came across there where God talks about his, or the psalmist talks about that God, his anger lasts only for a few minutes, but his joy is forever. It, it, there's a direct correlation there to Revelation 3.19 that says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. So when suffering comes into our life, it gives us an opportunity to evaluate and say, God, is there some sin in my life? Am I being disciplined? And if so, we turn and we confess. We see this in Psalm 38. Psalm 38, verses 3 through 8. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There's no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about mourning. For my sides are filled with burning and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the the tumult of my heart. And in verse 18, the psalmist says, I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. The psalmist teaches us Pharaoh teaches us that when suffering comes into our life, God is sovereign over that, and sometimes he may be sending that as discipline in order to get our attention so that we might confess our sin to him and by his power turn from it. Third, turn to God for healing. Please don't hear me today say that, that don't, not to go to the doctor. I, I believe doctors are gifts from God. Medicine, some of the things that that can be done are are amazing. But if you're turning to a doctor without turning to the Lord, you're placing your hope in the wrong place. You think about all all these places in Scripture. I don't have time to go through all of these, but Jesus walking through the crowd. You remember the woman who'd been bleeding for, was it 12 years or something like that? She hadn't gotten any relief. She'd gone to all these doctors She had gotten worse under their treatment, the Bible said. She had spent all of her fortune seeking after this this message that they could protect her, they could make her well. And finally, she hears about this man. And he comes walking through her town, and she's just a feeble woman who's been suffering with this illness for years. But she makes her way through the crowd, and just enough to reach out and to touch the hem of his garment. And she was made well. Now, I'm not telling you that if you turn to God, all of a sudden he's going to heal you instantly. Jesus healed this woman, and he turned and he said to her, woman, your faith has made you well. Sometimes God will do that. I've I've been in hospital rooms. I've prayed with, with church members. We've prayed for God's healing, and I've seen it. I've seen God bring healing in such a way that only he could get the glory for that. Doctors just confounded. Well, it was there, but where is it now? But sometimes God doesn't choose to move that way. Sometimes God says, keep holding on to me. Keep believing me. Keep trusting me. See, the reality is when you turn to God for healing, sometimes he'll heal instantly. Sometimes he'll heal in a little while, sometimes it won't be until the very end, but he will bring healing. 
Again, I, I point to that passage that I read earlier, Revelation 21, verse 4, that one day he's going to wipe away every tear, that he's going to do away with every pain, that he will turn to him for healing. And fourth is this, it's the last application for us today is this, turn to God before it's too late. Turn to God before it's too late. Understand that God is sovereign over your suffering. When you're suffering, examine your life. If there's sin in your life, confess it to him and turn from it. Turn to him for healing. But if you're sitting here today and maybe, maybe you're not in, in any place, shape, or form to receive any of that because you're not a believer. You've never, you've never turned and placed your faith in Jesus to save you. Revelation chapter, 20, or chapter 16 gives us an eerie description that this is not the last time that this plague of boils will come. Exodus chapter 9, this was a picture, I believe, also of what one day would happen in the end. Revelation chapter 16, 1 and 2 says, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. You say, Pastor, are you really going to stand in 2015 and use that kind of language, the mark of the beast and all that? Absolutely. God's word does. He's preserved this. I believe he has created. I believe he sustains. And I believe he's bringing it to an appointed end. And what that means is that the end of the book is just as important as anywhere else. If you're here today flirting with this idea and this notion that God, when, he, when you get to the end of your life, that he will just look at you and smile as a loving grandfather and say, uh, you were actually pretty good. Come on in. You are presuming that God is only gracious and not just. If God were only gracious and not just, there would have been no need for Jesus to come. He could have, from his throne in heaven, declared all of us forgiven and righteous. But God, in his justice, will demand payment. Turn to God before it's too late. Let's pray together. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.